Hey, I'm Mike Bruce, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. Today, I'm joined by Corinne Riley. She's at Greylock. Uh, previously, she was, actually worked at Morgan Stanley, and like the roster is pretty impressive. The companies that help support either go public or through direct listing, uh, Uber, Zoom, uh, Palantir. Uh, we're going get to get into early stage investing, uh, what Corinne likes to see in companies. We're actually going to talk about community-led growth, which I'm really excited about. Uh, but before we do that, Corinne, welcome to the show, and, uh, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, okay, so one of the things that we were talking about before we hit record here was uh, you grew up uh, in a small town in Italy. Uh, you're now in the South Bay of San Francisco, part of the Greylock team, and like investing. Like, how do you go from a small town in Italy to where you are now? <laughs> yeah, uh, it can only be best described as a series of fortunate events. I am from a small town called Viareggio in Italy. It's on the coast of Tuscany near Pisa, about an hour away from Florence. And Grew up there most of my life, thought I was going to be there for the rest of my life, and really just got a couple of great educational opportunities outside of Italy towards the end of high school that kind of catapulted me um, back to the out here to the US. Um, I eventually ended up in Chicago uh, for, for college, right at econ, and started realizing that technology was a world that I wanted to be a part of. And so, you know, job by job, internship by internship, made my way out here to, uh, to San Francisco. Uh, so yeah, like you mentioned at Morgan Stanley, I primarily focused on IPOs, both in consumer and enterprise, realized there that I really love the enterprise side of things. And I really love the early stage, you know, zero to one uh, part of the, of the, the, the uh, company journey. And so decided today I wanted to do early stage and got lucky enough to, to be investing here at Greylock. That's awesome. What's it like being an iBanker? Is it, is it as terrible as people say? <laughs> No, I, I quite enjoyed it. You learn, you definitely learn a lot about the ecosystem. That's for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how relevant being able to benchmark and, you know, off the top of your head, know how metrics benchmark compared to com public companies. It's actually very useful. Yeah. I feel like that's, that's, a, that's incredibly useful. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things we, we explore on the show is getting the, into the mindset of investors and, and ideally to help founders, you know, be more successful with, with fundraising, whether that's metrics or, or how they think about their business and, and the right fundraising process. And maybe just to help kind of set the context for, for some of our conversation here is, you know, what types of companies, I mean, yeah, Greylock's a prolific investor, I think over like 400 portfolio companies at this point, like what types of companies, you know, maybe in terms of stage and, and sector does, does Greylock primarily invest in? And then, you know, you personally, what do you like to cover and and what gets you energized and, and excited every day? For sure. We're a billion dollar fund right now. It's our 16th fund. We primarily focus on really the early days of companies. So we like to be the first money in. So that ends up being seed in series A. Um, we are uh, divided between, we do both consumer and enterprise. And so we have teams related to both those spheres. I focus on the enterprise side of things. So I personally do early, day, early stage B2B SaaS is my primary focus. And so that will include, uh, you know, customer facing SaaS, which is actually one of my main uh, priorities right now, which I call like the next gen customer engagement space. So really closing the loop between sales, product, and everything in between, like support, success, et cetera. 
I also focus uh, a decent amount on e-commerce infrastructure where we've made some bets uh, recently, primarily in a company called Postscript uh, where we invest in the series B. And I'm also trying to focus more on our B2B payments and financial SaaS stack as well. Awesome. So one of the things I, I was doing some research and reading some things you wrote, uh, and you recently penned a piece about community-led growth, which I think is super fascinating. Can you just kind of touch on maybe the high level? We'll make sure to link to it so everyone can kind of read the full post and, and see it's got some great visuals in there as well. Um, you know, I think that the hotness for the last couple of years has been like product-led growth. Um, can, we, can we talk a little bit about community-led growth and, and what it is and, and maybe why now is the right time to be thinking about community-led growth as a strategy? For sure. I really think about community-led growth as kind of, I call it the expansion pack, the product-led growth, right? It's okay. very difficult to have one and not the other. The way I think about it is uh, customers are coming to the table now with so much more information about tools available to them, the different features that something might have, you know, how you compare to your competitors, et cetera. And the avenues through which they're getting this information has increased considerably. A lot of those avenues typically end up being social avenues. So they're hearing information from their peers, information from you know, groups that they're in, from social media, um, et cetera. And they're using that information, whether it be you know, on purpose or subconsciously to create uh, an idea of what tool is best for them and what they should buy, right? And you know, I think this is something that's obvious in consumer land, right? And that's why there's, you know, <laughs> advertising is a, you know, one of the largest markets in the world. But I think in B2B particularly, we've thought of it as, you know, product is the at the forefront of, of selling. And that's very true. And that's the premise of product-led growth. But I think with community-led growth, it's product plus the community around that product that is enabling some companies to use that, that 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 dynamic to their advantage and make the people around this tool be really experts and champions for them. And so that's how I well, think about community life. What's, what's like a what's a what's a good example of like a couple of companies maybe that are, you, you think are just doing a stellar job at yeah creating creating a community and, and really being purposeful about it yeah salesforce is one of the the main examples that comes to mind i mean salesforce in so many different ways is an incredible company um they have a program called salesforce trailblazers that you know people this is can be a pretty career changing um program for some people if you can say hey i am certified in this tool that is a prolific tool and I know how to use it better than you know 80% of the people out there that's something that that actually changes their career trajectory and trailblazers is a great example of how they've been able to do that they have a humongous community of people who will answer each other's questions will take courses to learn the the product even better uh, I, there's a stat that I read once that 82% of uh, of salesforce um uh, users will say that they improve the ability for their company to use the product thanks to the Trailblazer community. And so that's a, an incredible example. I spoke to someone on, on the Salesforce community team, and they estimate that every year they save in the millions of dollars on customer support spend because of Trailblazers. So people are literally answering questions um, within the customer world 
for each other than reaching out to customer support for, for Salesforce. So that's just an incredible example of how even at a humongous scale, they've been able to make it work. Um, great example, huge company, right? A lot of resources to kind of create and manifest a community. Like, is there a right time? Like, should a company maybe that just, just getting started with a handful of customers think about how we create a community and a program like Trailblazers? Or is there, do you think like a right time to try to introduce uh, a community to, to your B2B SaaS product, for example? I, I don't think there's, I think it's always the right time, right? Um, and it's for startups, it ends up being less of a question of is community right for me? I think there's probably some cases where actually it's not right, but it's more of a question of, uh, do I have the ability to focus my time and money and employee, you know, employee focus on something like this? So that's really where the trade-off becomes a difficult trade-off to make in the early stages. But I would say that some companies, you know, at the seed series A, like truly the early days have started investing in community leaders or just even personally the founder making sure that the people who are using the product at least are, are know each other and have a space to talk to each other and are able to, let's say, create content that they can share with each other. So even at a smaller scale like that, that's something that ends up being incredibly valuable. And I think community is the type of thing that initially it doesn't feel like it's scaling really well. And that's, you know, that's inherent to it, right? It's going to feel like you're kind of talking on a wall for a couple of weeks, months, mm -hmm. but it actually does scale over time. So I would say there isn't, you know, I wouldn't say you're ever too early. I think what I tell people is this, do you believe that dedicating resources to the community is going to improve your the success of your company at any level? And so that level can be sales, it can be improving the success of it, the customer success of it, it can be improving the uh, brand uh, recognize, you know, ability to recognize the brand of it. If you think that any of those plays really matters to you, then yes, you should, you should direct uh, resources to community. If on the other hand, that's not your number one priority, you are still building the product, you need to all your money to go towards engineers to build that MVP, then yes, you probably are too early. Does, does, does a community need to have like a physical or, or when I say physical, does it, does it need to be like a destination? Like, you know, there's things like Circle or Slack or other purpose-built places for community exists. Or have you seen any examples of like strong communities where maybe it doesn't live in a, in a dedicated tool? Totally. I think um, one that comes to mind, and this is this is kind of cheating, but public um, public mm -hmm. is an example of you know their product is inherently a community product, right? It's community based investing, but it's not like they you know, so they they kind of built it into them. So that's an extremely interesting case where they needed didn't need to go build a Slack or something like that because the people are actually coming to them in the product. Um, I would say that you don't need to have a Slack for every single thing in the world or a circle or whatever it is. Um, and if anything, some people get over, um, you know, get burdened by having too many of those spaces that they're continuously checking in on. I've seen some companies have a lot of success just by being very active in the, in the, in the circles that already exist. 
So for mm. example, um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite communities is called Locally Optimistic. It is a data focused uh, community. So really, you know, hundreds, I think it's in the thousands now of people who are in the data world are part of it. Um, it's agnostic, right? So you're not necessarily, it's not someone trying to sell to you all the time. If anything, they try to stop um, brands from over, over promoting themselves, yeah. but it's a place that I've spoken to many people in the data world who I've asked them, Hey, like, if you had to look for a tool in, you know, this, this type of tool for yourself, where would you look? How would you go about that? And their first answer is I would just ask people and locally optimistic. And so, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to own your own Slack. But if you own some of the mindshare around around the environments that matter, that ends up being a, a huge push for you. Yeah, that's super cool. I uh, this is un, unrelated to um, maybe being in someone else's community, but uh, one of our customers, Pistol Lake, they make they make like shirts uh, and t-shirts, and they're a men's fashion company, uh, and they have like a whole Reddit uh, community, uh, really geared towards like people that love to travel, kind of. Uh, one bag people who who like you know really geek out on that stuff and it's really interesting to see like I posted some feedback like hey I'm six five and I have like this weirdly long torso like I would love like a longer version of the shirt and like the next day uh, they sent me like a sample which I thought was like the coolest thing ever to see like that happen where like I posted something and then like they were listening and and got a shirt within like you know a couple of days from that so I thought that was really cool yeah, that's, um, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> it's, um, there's so many insights to be gained from what people are saying in your different communities. Um, and so tracking that really well ends up being for a lot of companies, whether you're early or whether you're, you know, Salesforce, tracking what people are saying and how people are engaging um, can actually be a needle mover. Are you looking, so you, I mean, you're an investor, right? So you're looking at deals every day. Uh, and, and probably community-led type companies as well. Like, are there certain like metrics or key? Is it is it something you feel, or are you looking for like quantifiable things as well, like number of members, activity? Like, what what are the like key metrics or, or things you're looking for, either qualitatively or quantitatively, when you're like assessing a, a company and maybe looking at the the community as a differentiator? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think. I think we're starting to get to a place where people are going to measure it more and more. And in fact, we've invested, Greylock has invested in a company called Common Room and their whole, you know, their whole, um, you know, product thesis is that we need to be able to stitch together and create a single pane of view of what all your different sources of community are saying, because right now what's happening is community managers are, you know, every day, multiple times a day, logging into each individual account, manually checking who's saying what, you know, hope your hope crossing your fingers that you don't miss an important Slack message or an important, you know, tweet that someone has a problem with your product, right? And it's super manual. And so what Common Room is doing is saying, hey, we can stitch all these profiles together. We can give you, you know, community manager and their team, a pane that says, hey, uh, Corinne is your most active uh, community member because she is messaging a lot in the Slack. She's responding to other people on Reddit. And, you know, she is also on Twitter, you know, liking every single thing that you do. You know, 
you should reach out to Corinne and ask her if she wants to write some content for you because she has a lot of pull within the community. And so that's an extra layer of, of just insights that people haven't had yet. So my hope is that with tools like Common Room, um, it will pretty much become you know, ubiquitous for every company who has a pulse on their community through this to be able to say to investors, hey, um, this, you know, these are my KPIs. This is how it's tracking. This is how it's looked like historically. Because right now I would say both on the investor side and on the company side, it's pretty manual. Um, and it is a little bit more gut checking, like you're saying, uh, which, which isn't optimal. It's a, it's a, it's, there are parts of communities that are very measurable. Of course, there will always be parts that aren't measurable. Like, you know, there's 10,000 messages. Well, are they positive messages or are they <laughs> negative messages? And so you get into the also analyzing the text, which is another thing that common roommates will be able to do. So, um, that's that's a world that I would love for us to go get to very quickly. Yeah, at what point you know does this start to become something that's defensible for your for you? I'm thinking about you know uh, I'm an early stage founder, call it a seed seed stage company, just getting off the ground. Like, how does this become a defensible you know position for me or a mode? Is it like immediately? Does it take time and compound? Like, what are you seeing in terms of how defensible? The community becomes for for your product service offering whatever it might be i think there are certain markets and there's certain types of products where community can become a humongous mode right um and and what it depends on in my mind is I mean, there are a couple of things it depends on what the the competitive landscape for that product looks like sure. if you are in a world where um you have quasi-identical products at pretty similar stages amongst different different competing companies. Being able to say, hey, I'm the most recognized name. And if I walk down, you know, if I go to Y Combinator demo day and ask anyone, hey, what should I use for this? And everyone says, hey, you should use Corinne's product. This actually turns, it sounds small, but it actually ends up being a, a, you know, a growth trajectory that is, is, is durable. It's not going to make you a $10 billion company just off of that, but it mm -hmm. does drive a lot of initial usage that, you know, you'd rather have than not. I would say there are some spaces where, where it is less of a um, defensible moat and, and more of a nice to have, right? But um, there are so many spaces that that community touches, right? So actually, ironically, there's David Spinks, who's one of the one of the most amazing thinkers in community, wrote a book. Um, and in this book, he has this called Spaces Model, right? It's the outcomes of business of you know businesses of community, and it's support, product acquisition, contribution, engagement, and success spaces. So like all those things individually are you know you don't have to do all of them, but all of them can be. Um, one of the areas that you improve greatly through community. And so let's say you take engagement and engagement makes your, is your main focus and you're using community to improve your customer engagement. That can become a pretty large moat. Um, I would say that uh, it's, it's broadly, I would call it more of a go-to-market motion. As an investor, I would typically like to see it be accompanied by a product mode, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's difficult to completely to completely back someone if if they don't necessarily have a product mode, but I do think it's it's going to become more and more important for investors as time goes on. Yeah, I love it. Um, clearly, you're you're uh, it, 
an expert in some of this stuff, like we're going to move on to some, some more kind of ground, like tactical things around fundraising. But before we do that, like any last things, thoughts, things people should check out related to community. If I'm just thinking about it for, for the first time for, for my company. For sure. I would say if you are, if you're trying to figure out how to manage your community, you want to get advice from other people, you're just kicking it off. Or even if you're, you're further ahead, check out Uncommon. Uncommon is the community for community builders. And it's an incredible resource. It's podcasts, content, uh, you know, everything that you can think of um, to kind of get your community off the ground. So un Uncommon, I would uh, check it out. You've inspired me to kind of rethink about our community strategy. So you know, our customers are investors and, and founders, and, and for the most part, you know, 80% of our, our revenue is from, from companies direct. And last year we tried a, a community and, and maybe we just didn't invest in enough quite a bit because, you know, it was an effort to get it off the ground and we weren't getting a ton of feedback. And, uh, but now I think it might be the right time to, to re restart it and put an earnest effort into it because uh, you've definitely inspired me. The, the one thing I wonder is like, you know, founders in particular, when you have the founder type uh, archetype, it's, you're usually in a lot of communities too. And that's, that's my only like question is like, you know, your investors typically have some sort of platform or community function. You might be in other founder peer groups. Like, do you want another space for that? But I definitely think it's at least worth a, worth a shot. Yeah. Yeah. There's this thing called the, again, David Spinks wrote about this, the community, community commitment curve, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. start off as just reading, reading a post. And then there's, specific milestones that you can say, I want this person to hit these, where if I get to the top of the curve, they are, you know, an ambassador for this company or this tool, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you, you know, you can orient around those certain milestones and make it so that you are, you are creating a path for people to organically reach each of those by themselves and, and, you know, become that ambassador. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen magically, but there are definitely ways to, 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 yeah. to quantify it. And that's why, you know, back to the common room idea, um, it's never too early to start measuring it, right? Even if you're measuring, hey, only 50 people liked my tweet about this, or yeah. only 50 people are in the Slack right now, but hey, I've looked at it and those 50 people are messaging pretty often. That's actually pretty, that's actually really insightful. 50 people like my tweet, I'd, I'd close my laptop, call it a win and, and have a beer. <laughs> so, uh, that's awesome. Okay, we're going to switch over to some fundraising stuff now. Um, you know, our audience is really pre-seed, seed stage founders, you know, maybe gearing up for their first kind of institutional raise, or Series A. Uh, I think historically, Greylock has been a seed Series A investors, usually one of the first checks, um, like impressive portfolio, App Dynamics, Figma. Airbnb, Facebook, like pretty awesome. Uh, I guess maybe to get to a question, you know, how do you see the, the because you're shepherding some of these companies to, to a series A, how does the process change for a founder from call it a seed stage raise and, and what that looks like versus going to raise a, a series A? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some things that are very different and some things that don't change at all. Um, the things that don't change at all, which I think are good things to focus on, um, what doesn't change is one, just understanding the team and why they want to be doing this and why they should be the people doing this. And I think that's a question that seed series A, series F, like that's always going to be on the table. Um, 
And so that that's probably one of the main things that I'd like to reorient ourselves around. We 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 invest in both, uh, you know, early founders who have never had a company before and mm -hmm. prolific founders who maybe this is their fifth company, right? So no matter what stage of the entrepreneurial journey you're at, um, it is just we want to know what is motivating this founder. I would then say the other thing that doesn't change is just having an understanding of the longer term vision. And we don't expect people seed series A, even sometimes series B to be able to define to us exactly what's going to get you from $1 billion company to a $10 billion company. But we do like to see like there is thinking around the larger opportunity. What, do, what does change between seed and series A? So at the seed, we've done investments where it's you know, no metrics, no product, just an idea and a great person. Um, and we're totally comfortable with that. Um, by the A, I would say when we have, you know, this you know, larger amount of money, we expect that the first thing they're going to do is hire, right? And that's really what we think of the tipping point between you have an idea and you're thinking about it and you're getting, you know, initial customer approval. And then you have this infusion of $10 million, let's say, well, now you're going to hire a team around yourself. So one of the main questions then becomes, you know, do you, will you have the ability to hire a quality team that is also mm -hmm. going to be um, uh, as passionate about the product as you? And, and on top of that, you know, are you, who exactly needs to be hired right now? So that ends up being a pretty large question around the Series A that might not be something we ask about around the seed. Um, and then I think there needs to be, you know, between seed and Series A, at the seed, we do like it if we can see some demonstration that customers are on the same page as you, right? You've done customer calls, they agree with the product idea. I think there's always the tendency for people to, to over agree, right? People love saying that ideas are perfect and wow, I would buy this in an instant. And then, you know, you try to get them to write the check and they don't do it. Yeah. But so trying to get maybe a little bit more concrete on what the customers are saying and get some more quality feedback. That's something that I would want to see around the A. And the team, that's interesting. Uh, and I think spot on. Is there a way a founder can de-risk that maybe in, in a pitch? Is, is it showing like, here's who I would recruit tomorrow uh, if given the opportunity, you know, if we had $10 million in the bank or here, here's who's going to have lined up. Have you seen anything creative like that? Like, cause like, you know, your job as investors to de-risk it as much as you can. Is there a way to, for a founder to prove at least with recruiting, like, Hey, here's how I could de-risk the, the hiring curve that we, you know, we're going to have. I think it's, I think it's less of, I need a list of names of people you're going to hire tomorrow because, you know, that's also a place where we help. Like we have mm -hmm. incredible teams at Greylock whose entire job it is, is to help our founders find co-founders, find execs, find first-time engineers, right? So that is something that we pride ourselves in being able to help with as well. I would say it's less about exactly who you're trying to find, but making sure that you have a specific um, theory around who is the most needed. Sometimes mm -hmm. you know, the first exec is a CMO. Sometimes the first exec is going to be a VP product or a VP engineering, right? I think usually there's VP engineering is one of the first, but it, there's different combinations of what matters in the early stages. And so having a pretty, a, a pulse on, on, on what sequencing of hiring matters the most to your company, to your product, to your market, that is something that we, is a second level of understanding, um, you know, de-risking the opportunity. Yeah, cool. Um, you know, some 
tactical things I think are always good for for our founders, you know, to have an understanding on is how does the pitch deck change from like C to, to A and, and I mean, yeah, I'll hit pause there. Like any anything you can think of in terms of how the pitch deck would change or how I should think about pitching my business from, um, you know, C to, to Series A. Uh, just to start off, I would say um, we don't always need a pitch deck. Um, I have, we've made investments and I know of growth investments that have happened without the pitch deck. So I try to say we, we don't want to burden the founder more than needed, meaning that if it's going to take you a week of your time to make this pitch deck, we'd rather you focus on the product and come with, you know, a memo or something that's something that takes less time. Uh, so I just want to start off with that. I think that in terms of like the materials that are available, um, in some industries and for some products, you'll have customer usage already. And mm -hmm. so to be frank, I'd much more rather have um, access or you know more insights from you about what you've learned from initial usage, initial customer behavior than a pretty page about TAM, right? Um, that's just like way more valuable to me. Um, so I, you know, I, I'd much yeah. rather a screenshot of your amplitude than, uh, than than something like that. So I would say this: um, there's going to end up being one to three key questions that matter to us and that influence our decision. And so it's our job to figure out what those one to three key questions are to relay them to you as a founder, and and then to figure out together what's the easiest way to get to a re to an answer. Um, and so that's kind of the process that I like to do the most versus, hey, on the first meeting, you should have everything readily available to me because I don't think that's realistic ask for most, you know, founders in the early stages. Let's um, switch to your, your investment banker for a while, right? So you lived in models and Excel and all that stuff. So that's why I'm going to ask you this question. Um, how important for you is the, the exercise of forecasting and how a founder thinks about growing their business, you know, in terms of, you know, I think you, there's kind of two schools of thought. You hear some investors are like, I don't care about your financial forecasting because obviously you're not going to hit it. Uh, and then you, there's another school of thought, which is like, I want to see how about, I know they're not going to hit it, but I want to see how a founder thinks about growing their business and, and how they resource and, and think realistically or unrealistically. Like, where do you land on that curve? And like, what are, what are some, you know, I think things you'd love to see that founders do when they think about their, their business, at least from a, a modeling perspective or, or financial perspective, and maybe what are some things to avoid? I think, I think it's, it's, I don't really often look at forecasted numbers to be totally mm -hmm. frank. I do find it interesting to understand, let's say we're meeting in March, uh, yeah. to understand where they think they'll be at the end of the year, right? So I think, you know, nine months, I think that's a, that's a pretty realistic um, timeline to be able to have a prediction of where you're going to be. And like you said, it's a little bit more qualitative than quantitative. Um, so it's, it's really a little bit more about, hey, at the end of this year or in Q3 this year, I'm going to hire a sales leader and that sales leader is going to hire these reps. That's this narrative that I care more about and versus you know the attached ACV to that. And then mm -hmm. I would say subsequently, I care less about the numbers attached to the forecasting and more about the, the pipeline that's underlying that. So if someone says I have you know 40 customers in the pipeline, 
there's a there's a wide range of what that means. That could be 40 very engaged customers who are banging at your door to get access. And that can be 40 people that you've lightly spoken to. And so having a more in-depth understanding of the quality of those leads is way more valuable in my mind than you know forecasting forecasting the ACV for them. Yeah. Perfect. Love it. You, you, it sounds like you love the the customer connection more than anything is like part of this job. And then talking to like customers to hear what they think or, you know, founders products is, I get the sense that like, you're really into like the customer mentality and mindset as it relates to a lot of the companies that, that you might invest in. I would say, I would say, first of all, we try not to, um, talk to customers or ask for customer intros unless we feel very leaned in because we want to yeah. be responsible of the company's relationship with their customers. That's the most important relationship to them. We're not going to do customer calls unless we're feeling very positive about the investment, first of all. And I would say this, it's less about us talking to the customers and more us gauging how much this founder understands their customers. Mm -hmm. I think the, the biggest compliment that, or one of the biggest compliments you can say about a founder is saying that they're customer centric in my mind. Like they understand not just the pain points of the customer, but also, you know, how they want to be sold to, um, you know, what needs to happen for them in order to get to that large enterprise deal, who are the stakeholders? Like there's a lot of, of behavioral um, analysis that goes into that, that, you know, not everyone has to be totally frank. Yeah. And so our, one of the main questions I ask always is, um, you know, what is the most intense usage pattern out of your customers? What customer behavior have you seen that you didn't expect or something like that? So it's a little bit less about me dealing with the customers mm -hmm. and gauging how much the founder um, has learned from them in the process. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, we're going to wrap today with three questions. We ask all investors that are on, on season two. Uh, hopefully we draw some insights and just really tactical things to share with, with our founders and community. Um, so first one is what catches your eye in a cold email from a founder? First of all, um, making sure it's the space that I actually invest in. I get a lot of, uh, pretty random spaces. Yeah. I have no, <laughs> no hand in, um, right space, right stage. I would say the best emails that I've seen is there's a one-liner, a link to the website, if there's a website at this point, and you know a status of the ask of where they're at. Um, that makes it the most actionable, just because if they're too, too early, but I think it's interesting, I can give them a very realistic timeline of when I want them to reach back out again. Um, and if on the other hand, it's, it's the right stage, I can walk into that meeting with a better idea of you know, what the outcome is, what I should be asking, what I should be looking for. Yeah. Do you like to build relationships with those founders where it's maybe just too early for you to engage or, or how do you like the founder to, to treat that relationship? I personally do. I think, um, I think sometimes I, it's not always in the founder's best interest, right? Yeah. They should spend every, you know, <laughs> there's only so many hours in the day and there's so much product to build. Um, I want to make sure that they're not wasting time talking to me if we're not going to be able to do anything actionable for another two years, let's say. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be them be spending that time um, in the product. So I, I, I try to be as forthcoming as possible. And I just say, you know, just so you know, this is way too early for me. We can chat, but I don't see this going anywhere. Let's spend our time. I yeah. want to make sure you spend your time wisely. What's the number one thing founders can do to help speed up a fundraising effort? Mm -hmm. 
Um, the number one thing you can do is just research the investors that you're focused on and, and make sure that they match your domain and come up with a select number of founder of funders, um, of investors that you want to meet with, um, versus blasting a lot of investors. And next thing you know, you have 40 intro calls in a week. Uh, so mm-hmm. keeping the circle small, but you know, large enough that you're giving yourself an opportunity to, to actually succeed in the process, um, that's going to make it faster because you're just going to be able to get through all the calls in a much more selective way. Cool. Um, so let's say I've done my homework. I'm like, great. Stage is right. Sector is right for Greylock and found out things are a good fit. Any tips for getting in touch or applying or increasing my odds of, of a meeting? Is it a re- through a, a referral from another founder? Like, how can I increase my odds? Um, we have all of our emails on the website. Uh, so feel free to, <laughs> to reach out or email anyone. That's that's the number one thing to do. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I read all my emails. I tried, I answer, I'd like to think that I answer all of them. Um, and even if it's like a, Hey, I'm not, thanks for the email, but this isn't interesting to me right now. Um, so whether it's coming from someone else or just a cold email, I'll read it equally. So awesome. Email me. Perfect. Um, uh, those are things of mine. Anything else before we, before we wrap up? This was great. Thank you for the time. I think, you know, the one, yeah, the one last, um, uh, you know, the one last thought here is. If you're interested in community, definitely, definitely check out Common Room, check out Uncommon. I think there's so many people in the community space that love sharing what they've learned. Um, one of the other resources I checked out, or I checked out and talked about here was David Spink's uh, book, The Business of Belonging. So I definitely would, uh, would look at that as well. And then we also talk about community, a decent amount and B2B SaaS investing in um, our podcast, Great Matter. Love it. Well, thanks so much for joining us and uh, hope you have an awesome weekend, Corinne. Thank you, you too. See ya.